This is John Mitchell. This is Milan Hader. This is Jan Hader. Hi, this is Peter McNabb, and you're listening to the official podcast of Dog Nation Hockey. Smalls wins the draw, puck pulled back to Cap. He'll take it himself down the left wing, flying into the zone across the blue line. Looks to Smalls down the slot, he'll walk in, he shoots and scores! Welcome to the Dog Pod, folks. This is Mike Smalls-Freeman and Marty Cappy-Richardson, and we're excited to be back with you here on the Dog Pod, Episode 7 of Season 2, featuring Jake Schroeder. It has been a minute since we've been with you here on the Dog Pod, and I know uh, not uh, not for the best reasons. And Cappy, I know we all uh, extend our deepest condolences to you uh, with the recent loss of your father, Graham Richardson, and I know that... Uh, you know, luckily for you, you've been able to use some of this recent time to spend some quality time with your father in that really challenging last journey of uh, his life. Yeah, thank you for that, Smalls. And um, you're right, I was able to get down to Arizona uh, three times over the last few months, and th- that's despite our, our really busy schedule and my personal busy schedule as well, and we're still able to sneak a few of those in and and unfortunately probably skip a, a dog pot or two along the way, yeah, but... Sorry. um. But uh, on one of those trips, I actually got to go to a DUASU game, and um, that was down there in Arizona. And um, David Carl, who was our last guest, is the guy that hooked hooked me up with the tickets for that, and that was that was pretty cool because um, for me, I, I did a post on that, but one of my biggest childhood memories is when my dad took me to my very very first hockey game, Denver Spurs against the Salt Lake City Golden Eagles, and I was just a little tyke back in 1974, and I. I still re it was such a big moment in my childhood that I remember the, I remember the score. I remember where I sat in the Coliseum. I remember the sounds and the smells and, and just an amazing night that, that kind of shaped what I even do today. And, um, it's kind of in a neat way, full circle to take my dad to a game. And, um, and that was, uh, really the last, public thing we did we went for lunch and things like that but really kind of a cool thing and and um i noticed when i went down and saw him for the last time that what the guys over at uh the ncaa or in it uh nchc really the referees over there they were really great to me and they actually took the puck off the ice that night and um and mailed it to me and um, then I gave it to my dad on one of those trips and lo and behold, when I went down to go see him for the last time, that puck was right next to him. And so that was, that was really powerful and really cool. And I, I know it's been a difficult few weeks and you, you heard my mom talking to me this morning. It was a tough day for her, but she knows she's surrounded by love and, and we'll get through it. Yeah. And you have an incredible family. What would you share Cappy in terms of, uh, we have lots of folks, uh, that are going through that journey or about to go through that journey or have been through that journey, what would you share with them? Cause I think that's a really important, you know, uh, learning experience and, and just something that you only get to experience one in, once in your lifetime. Yeah. I think, I think everybody goes through it differently. And, and for me, I'm probably more public than, than most people. And so for me, it was therapeutic to kind of write about it and t- tell people kind of what I was going through. And at the same time, a lot of people that knew my dad, that, that they were able to, to hear some stories about him and, and different things like that. But 
I would guess the biggest thing is, is no regrets. Cause I talk to people afterwards. I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have done that. And, and, and for me, um, I was going to drive down and see my dad cause I knew he was fading fast. And Cindy, literally I was finishing a tax return at three o'clock in the afternoon and four o'clock came around. She goes, you got a flight at seven 30. How do I have a flight? I just booked it for you. So, and I, I got on that flight that night. It was pulled the OJ Simpson running through the, the <laughs> airport there. And, um, and literally got to go see my dad. He was awake at nine 30 that night when I pulled in the Uber pulled in and dropped me off. And actually a friend of ours, uh, LP Johnson picked me up at the airport and friend of my parents and, um, dropped me off there. And my dad was sitting up waiting for me. And it was that evening, that next, uh, 60 to 90 minutes was the last time I really had a conversation with him, but it was an awesome conversation. And, and not that I would add regrets without that, but, but I would say, uh, make sure that uh, that you reconcile if there's a reconciliation, or you get a last chance to tell tell your loved ones that you love them. And yeah. um, and it was uh, it was as tough as it was. It was really cool. Yeah. Well, we're we're so pleased. I know that you got that time with your dad. I know you and I have talked about that, and you were instrumental in helping other folks in your family create that same thing. So mm-hmm. meanwhile, in, in dog nation, we, uh, uh, at the same time of you doing tax returns and, and dealing with the loss of your father, we were, uh, pushing ahead to, uh, our first ever cornhole event. And it was another tremendous success. We had nearly a hundred teams, uh, battling for the coveted title of the, of the corn dog. Yeah. And, uh, as usual, we had blind hockey there. We had sled hockey there, youth hockey, Really, everything in between represented really, you know, kind of affirming our commitment to have hockey is for everyone, cornhole is for everyone. doesn't matter what we're doing as an event. I think uh, one of the things that we're really uh, committed to is making sure everyone from the hockey community is there. And uh, we had two more checks uh, that we delivered to deserving families, and we'll be talking to one of those in a little bit, Mr. Sam Beveridge. Yeah, no, that was a, that was a really fun event, and um, really it was a brain brainchild of Daryl and Colby Wilson, uh, friends of ours from up north, and um, they've been donating cornhole boards to the um, uh, to Dog Nation, quite a few of them, and some really cool custom ones. We took one up to Jackson Hole last year, and we've had had ones, uh, Avs ones at different events, and and they said came to us and said, "Hey, how about doing a cornhole tournament?" And we thought, "Well, how do we do that?" And with with their help, we really put it on. It's probably going to become an annual event, and we, you know, there was a a, a couple of hiccups, but not really very many. And and uh, we look at that, and is it's probably going to be a a pretty good one for us in the future. And their company, Yardhouse Creation, makes these incredible custom boards, like incredible. We would come out, different people, we'd we'd sell the sponsorship and said, yeah, you can put your company name on it, or you could put your family picture on there. You can put your favorite hockey team on there. And some people came up with some really creative ideas with Daryl's help. And and, uh, I know you had some favorites, but my personal favorite was Andy Gary's, and he chose not to use his company. What he did is uh, he did an original six. He's a Boston guy, Boston Bruins with a prominent logo on there. But um, those two boards were really, really cool that that uh, Daryl put together for Andy. And um, if I was to pick, that was my favorite. How about you? Well, I think mine was um, uh, Blue Bear Way Services. So Sean Hollis, the owner there, uh, they've got a, a, a great baby blue color with their bear. And uh, Daryl and Colby just made that thing pop with all kinds of just, you know, it's just an overwhelming visual display of of creativity and so love that one i know sean and and the blue bear folks had to be pleased 
And really, it was just really inspiring to see just all of the sponsors. I think 37 different sponsors and board sets that were out on display. And it really just went to show you, wow, we've got some incredible companies and individuals that are supporting us and, and um, you know, really an inspiring show of support. And, and speaking of inspiration, that's what we aim to do here on the Dog Pod. So if it's the Dog Pod, you know, we aim to share uh, stories of resilience, hope, and hockey. So with that in mind, we're excited to have Jake Schroeder on today and Sam Beveridge. And before we get much farther, let's take a moment and hear from our sponsors And a special shout-out to our friend John Gelso of Van Jack Vodka, a longtime supporter and consistent sponsor of Dog Nation. Hi, this is Mark Rycroft, owner of Sobo Liquors, the official liquor store of Dog Nation. Just like Sobo Liquors, Van Jack Vodka and their owner, John Gelso, share the same fundamental values of Dog Nation – Van Jack is a great product out of Golden and can always be found at my store. At Dog Nation, we believe it's important to support local products and businesses that put an emphasis on helping families in our own backyard. Give Van Jack a try. You won't be disappointed. Welcome back, everyone. It's time for my favorite part of the show, Smallsy. <laughs> this is where we get our Van Jack on. What's it going to be for you today, buddy? You are so right. This is typically where we get our Van Jack on. But, you know, I just spent a lot of time in St. Louis with Reed Lowe and the St. Louis boys. And if you ever met Reed Lowe, you know that it's time for a little coffee and water today for me. So, uh, yeah, you know, I love Van Jack and a a Bloody Mary, a mule, so many great choices. But today it's water and coffee. (laughs) Wow. You know, Van Jack goes good with coffee, by the way. (laughs) So it goes with good with about everything. And, uh, you know, I, I'm usually short on energy, so it's got to be the monster in Van Jack as usual, right? You got a long day ahead of you. We got the uh, we got a crawfish boil at Skylight Specialist today that will probably go into the evening. That's where we office out of. Special shout out to Rob and Danny Packard for hosting uh, our offices there. So we have some celebrating to do with them tonight. Yeah, I think we might do a shot of Van Jack there, too. There we go. I'm, I can commit to that. All righty. Now that we have our Van Jack on, Cappy, or a cup of coffee in my case, it's time to queue up our featured guest, uh, the always inspiring Jake Schroeder, who has been involved with Dog Nation, uh, back to its roots, and always just so generous with his time and his talent, and has just been such a great friend to Dog Nation. Yeah, Smallsy, I got to say, I'm pretty psyched for this episode. Um, Jake, Jake Schroeder today, how about that? Mm. And uh, Jake and I got... Jake and I go really way back, probably even before he remembers, because uh, Cindy and I used to go up to Little Bear back in the day, and um, and one of those days we got backstage and and met Jake Schroeder and Opie gone bad, and we were pretty psyched. And Jake <laughs> actually took his his uh, Stanley Cup ring off and let Cindy put it on, and I I still remember that. That was uh, I don't know if we had cell phones back then or at least ones without cameras, so we didn't get a, a million pictures like I do today of that one, but. Um, since then, I mean, he's just been amazing. Like he's done so many things for us. And as you just mentioned, well, let's get him in here without further ado. Let's welcome Jake Schroeder. Jake, welcome to the dog pod. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. 
Yeah, right on, Jake. Thanks. Um, we're we're actually doing this one right at Jake's house too, right, Mikey? Yeah, couldn't be better. His thousandth uh, game uh, jersey signed by Joe Sackett's hanging on the wall right over my yeah. shoulder. Yeah, I signed it's it pretty, too, pretty just amazing. so you know. That's <laughs> good. Yeah, just, just get on there. Yeah, yeah. we thought it was an all play. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we thought everybody was supposed to sign it. So uh, anyway, let's go. Let's start with your roots. I mean, you're a Colorado native. There's not a whole lot of Colorado natives out there. And, um, and tell us about your journey from Boulder all the way to Opie gone bad. And we'll stop short of the abs for now. Okay. Yeah. I was, I was born and raised in Boulder and, uh, and, uh, grew up there. It was a great place to grow up. And we went to see you games. My family had, you know, season tickets to the bus for 60 years. Mm. And, uh, so we went, that was a Saturday tradition in the fall was walking up there from our from our house on Pine Street with my uncles and and going to the games and uh, stopping at Don's Cheese and Sausage and getting a mm. bratwurst and and a Verner's and walking up there and uh, mm. and seeing those games back in the back in the days you know back in the Big Eight days and and uh, a lot of fun going there and then I got to be a ball boy for the spring spring game one year when I was in uh, middle school and I was in junior high and uh, and that was really fun and then ended up going up there kind of you know was. Uh, Lived in a fraternity house and went to school for like nine months, but lived in the, <laughs> lived in the fraternity house for four years because I was just awesome back then. But I was in a in an acapella group that did pretty well. I started a, an acapella group in high school called the Wayfarers, and then uh, deservedly got kicked out of my own band, and then and then went to another group called the Seventeenth Avenue All Stars, who are still around today. Wow, um, and still play different kind of incarnation of what they're doing, but they're still really good and. And uh, Norm Silver's been running that show for a long time, but uh, did that for for a while, and you know was living in a fraternity house and making pretty good money being in a band, and uh, and just living uh, kind of a stupid life up there, but uh, but had fun. It was a good time. Well, well, let's go. Like, tell us about Opie Gone Bad. You talked about the Seventeenth Street guys here and the Wayfarers, but um, and kind of two part question here. Like, where? How did that come about? And and uh, a lot of people want to know where did that name come from. Well, so we used to play that we got to open for all kinds of bands because we didn't have to set up a drum kit. So we got to, you know, open for these big acts all the time, BB King and, and uh, people like that, because they didn't have to strike our set afterwards to get the main band on. So they loved that. The sub dudes, big head Todd, you know, back in the day. And, um, and so we were, we did a, we did one of these, they had the world's largest office party member at the Hyatt and, uh, they used to have these, you know, mm-hmm. it was like, 10,000 people at these parties and they were really fun. So we'd always play. And, and one year we were playing with Chris Daniels and the Kings. They were, they were the headlining band. We played before them and Chris was like, come on up and sing a song. So I remember singing the song with his band. And that was my first real experience, like with a big you know, band with horns and everything. And I was like, okay, I'm starting a band. So, hmm. um, started a, started a band and, and I had been on tour with, with uh, 17th Avenue Allsters. We did a department of defense tour up to Alaska and I used to play basketball constantly. And uh, and so I was playing ball at this really remote base up in Alaska, in Galena, Alaska. You have to fly in there. You can't drive. Mm. And it's our closest fighter base to mainland Russia. So it's just like in Top Gun where the Russians would fly towards us. And then they'd come up and intercept them and fly along next to each other and flip each other off and take pictures <laughs> and, and all that. So at this base, they're either at war or they're playing basketball, right? So these guys were just really, really high level basketball game. And when I was younger, I was pretty good. So I, you know, so I was playing with these guys they're like, what are you doing here, man? You know, and I, when I grow my hair out, it's reddish. And, and, um, they're, I'm like, well, I'm in a band. We're doing a, you know, we're going to play at the club tonight. 
And they're like, well, what kind of music you play? I'm like, I got gospel and R and B stuff. And you know, acapella. And they looked at me, the dude, his two brothers are like, yeah, okay. You know, <laughs> and they came to the show that night and one of them, you know, they were, they were hammered and just having a ball. And one of them one goes, man, you look like Opie, but you sing like a black man. The other guy goes, <laughs> Opie gone bad. And I said, I'm going to steal that name for a future project, you know, cause it was such a compliment. It was great. And, uh, and so I did. So I, I started a, you know, left the all-stars and started a, what we had originally envisioned is like a Stax Volt kind of cover, you know, doing or maybe some original music in the style of the old uh, Otis Redding and, and uh, Rufus Thomas stuff. And then it just kind of morphed into uh, to a real serious project when we got Kerwin Brown and Randy Chavez and Steve Ivey on board and really became a really, you know, definitely at that point had musicians in the band that were much, much higher level than I was and were really able to be very professional. And so... um so yeah, so we had Opie Gone Bad and um, kind of went from a fun project to a pretty serious thing in about 1996. Um, and we got signed to a, a small label here in Denver and and just kind of went from there. But we were real lucky. I, I mean, I played music as my living as long as I wanted to, you know? Yeah. I mean, it was that's a really, really lucky thing to have. A tough thing to do. Yeah. I mean, we were very, very blessed. Yeah. As you think about some of those names, Chris Daniels, B.B. King, Big Head, Todd of the Monsters, what kept um, Opie gone bad from uh, keep going? You know, I think the style of music that we were playing back then, we talked to all of the back then there were, I think there were five major labels, right? And the music business is, com- is completely different. Like it's a completely different business now than it was then, right? Like everybody had to have a promo kit. So you had to have an eight by 10 black and white glossy that you mm. got done at Rocky Mountain Photo over on Alameda. Mm. And you had to put that in a folder with a cassette tape and then upgraded to cds that was a big upgrade but you had a cassette tape that you put in there and they had these folders made that would hold a cassette tape and then you cut all your performances out of the westward and and pasted them on a piece of paper and then xerox that and then any any reviews you had and so it was a promo kit so every band had a promo kit and that's how you that's how you you know got notoriety or how you got gigs and then how you got interest and so our minor label talked to a bunch of major labels and we we showcased for for pretty much all the labels but it just wasn't really this was the you know mid to late 90s and it was a, more of a straight ahead style was what was really popular and i think if we had been at a different time we probably would have gone farther but but again almost every band that signs has like one song that that they do well with and then that's it i mean mm-hmm. like the vast majority of bands you know, we're, we're not talking about Big Hit Todd, who's made this great, great career out of just continuing to create, you know, fantastic music and and tour and all that. And, and they, they would really be the model if I was starting a band again to try and build up a crowd in different cities. And 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 first of all, just be really good guys. Right. Yeah. For that, sure. the, the road has to be worth mm-hmm. it, because if you're in a band with guys you can't stand, your odds of having something big happen are so minuscule. That it's just it's absolutely not worth it. So, mm-hmm. um, so you have to have good people around you, and we always did, and and uh, and, and we were real lucky. So, like I said, we we played regionally and toured regionally, and, and uh, I, you know, I was pretty satisfied with with where we were at. You know, yeah, no, you guys had quite a following back in those days, and um, so uh, nineteen ninety six, things are going well, new band um, playing all over. Uh, over Denver, Denver Herman's Hideaway, up in Evergreen, quite a bit, things like that. Um, and then there's this hockey team in town that comes from Quebec. And how did you go from playing these local clubs to doing the anthem? Sure. 
Well, I had done the, my first Nuggets anthem was 1985. I was a junior in high school. Wow. And I had tried out and I got an anthem and we did that. And I think we did a couple with the Wayfarers and then uh, kind of continued from there. So every year I'd do three or four anthems for them. And then um, in the early 90s, early to mid 90s, I lived in Wash Park, which back then was only like 10 minutes from McNichols. Mm-hmm. Right Now it's like 45 minutes to drive from <laughs> Wash Park to McNichols or whatever. But I was pretty close. So if they had somebody come in that was sick or had a bad sound check or whatever, they'd be like, can you get here in a half hour and do the anthem? So I was kind of there. And it didn't happen often, but they'd call me when they needed somebody in a hurry. So I think I kind of got in that way and they kind of knew me. And then in 90, right before 97, I, I did, I think I did one for the first season they were here and maybe two the second year because uh, they had a variety of different people. They had a, a bunch of different people the first year and then Jim Salestrom did all the playoffs. He was great. And then the second year they had a lady do all of them because hockey, the tradition is that you have one person mm-hmm. do all the anthems, which is kind of cool. Um, and then um, I did a couple the second year, maybe one the second year. And then uh, the third year they offered me the gig full time, but we were touring a lot. So I said, well, I, I'll do the ones I can, but I'm on the road a lot. And they were like, that's fine. So, um, so did that. And then pretty quickly just kind of worked our schedule around the Avs after that with the, with the band. So, um, so that was really fun and that was neat. And the band got to play over there a lot. You know, we played at McNichols and we played at, at the Pepsi center when they opened it before it was ballerina and, mm. and, uh, they, they involved our band in a lot of stuff over there, which was kind of cool. And that was when they were, I mean, they were just loaded for bear. That they team, were, you know, yeah. Like, right. Much like they are right now. Mm-hmm. But uh, but back then, they were in the Western Conference Finals every year, pretty much, you know, unless something stupid would happen, like Kerry Frazier calling interference on Rob Blake in Game 7 in overtime. <laughs> Things like <laughs> that, know, Stupid yeah. stuff like that yeah. happening. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember that as well. Do you, um, when did OP Gone Bad cease? We, um, I, I just, it was getting out of the realm of what I really wanted to concentrate on. And I didn't feel like it was fair to the other guys in the band because they're virtuoso level musicians. And I, I just didn't want to play that much anymore. And so 2012, uh, the fall of 2012, we talked and, and I just decided I didn't want to, didn't want to do it anymore. And, and, uh, you know, I was like, why don't you guys keep the name, just get a new singer. We can work them in. I, you know, I wanted to make it really easy for them. Cause I, you know, I love those guys because they're family. And, uh, and Randy was like, no. And I was like, why? And he goes, because every idiot buddy of yours for the next 10 years is going to come up to me in the middle of the show. Go, Hey, where's Opie? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, good point. Yeah. I do have a lot of idiot buddies that'll do that. <laughs> yeah. right. I probably would. Not on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we so. want Opie. I was like, yeah, fair point. Uh-huh. Uh, so, uh, they all, they all continue to play in different bands. You know, Randy's a, a monster musician. You know, he was kind of yeah. my partner in the thing. Mm. He plays with Bella Fleck when Bella Fleck's yeah. in town and sits in with the symphony, you know, cause he's just that good, which is, which is great. But reunion, uh, you know, I think we're going to, we had talked about it before, um, before COVID hit. And then when COVID hit, it's like, we're now, we're not going to do like some masks, stupid show with, you know, like, yeah. you know, we're not going to do that. We're going to wait till this thing's totally over and then we'll do probably one show and that's mm-hmm. it. Yeah, Dog Nation benefit sounds really exactly. good. Exactly. Yeah. Thank, yeah. You know what thanks, we did? Opie. We did like a third of our shows. Seriously, were benefit shows. Yeah. Oh. A third of our. It was part of our business plan from the very beginning to do a lot of benefit stuff, and it eventually morphed. I mean, we raised over three million dollars at gigs that we played. Wow. Over twenty years, which is something I'm really, really proud yeah, of. Just yeah. Just coincidentally, Smallsy brought a contract. Yeah. Well, except that <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm not going. If we're going to do a reunion show, we're we're going to cash in because those poor guys. <laughs> I made those guys do do benefit shows. Yeah. 
for 20 years. So if yeah. we do a reunion show, it's going to be uh, to make those guys some money. And, and I hear you. You know, there you go. So. We'll be there. <laughs> yeah, we will be. We'll, we'll have it. Yeah, we'll be happy f- to we'll support that out. one for sure. <laughs> Let's get Big Head Todd involved with that too, right? <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. I mean, we'll. You know, Why not? Yeah, that'd be great. So, hey, let's back up to you, that start of your journey you mentioned with the Avs. you got a contract now, and, and you're working your band schedule around. As you're standing there on the ice for that first time singing the national anthem uh, during that year, did you ever imagine that 25 years later you'd be celebrating your 1,000th game? You know, not really, although it was just – it it was very um, – you know, it wasn't – I'd been doing the anthem a lot for a lot of different things already by the time I did the abs, right? I'd already done a bunch of Nuggets mm-hmm. games and for years, right? For almost, you know, for more than 10 years, I'd done Nuggets games, right? So, oh, wow. okay. so it wasn't really a new experience for me to do that. I, I really enjoyed some of the different nuances that doing the anthem for hockey games included. And there was a different level of, a different level of respect, I think, um, just a different it's not there's no disrespect on any level from anything else but the way that hockey does the anthem there's a there's a definitely a tradition maybe rather that's a better way to say it than respect but right. there's a, a a very specific tradition about it and it's really cool and the and and hockey history has some just unbelievable anthem singers that have you know Roger Doucette and, and uh, Rene Rancor and uh, uh, Karen up in uh up in Detroit and these anthem singers that are really, really pieces of the team, you know, and I, I never really envisioned that I'd be part of that because when I was first starting, you know, the first five or six years I was there, they, those guys were blisteringly good. I mean, they just, they went so every year. If they didn't win the cup, it was kind of a, a farce that they didn't win. You know, like there's, there's no reason they'd, you know what I mean? It was, yeah. they were that good. Like, it's they, like this year's team. Yeah. They were expected mm-hmm. to win the cup pretty much every year back then. It was before the salary cap. So every year at the trade deadline, it's like, okay, who are the abs going to pick up? Oh, look, they got uh, Rob Blake, right. Or, you know, Ray, oh look, they got Ray Bork, you know, and then they had all the, you know, the power play back then was Rob Blake, Ray Bork, Sackick, Forsberg and Hayduke. Like mm-hmm. the, you know, four guys, guys are okay. out of the five were hall of fame guys and hey dude because yeah. you know his numbers are, are good enough to get him in the in the hall you know it's and that was our power play right like that's that's ridiculous mm-hmm. so um so i never really felt like i certainly was on the level of anything that people were going to remember about the team you know along the lines of those guys and that that's the way it should be you know looking back now it's like you know that was a pretty good chapter that was a good you know that was i was i was really lucky and really blessed to be able to do it as long as i did that was great yeah. 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 So you, you just mentioned a couple of those. Uh, you've had a lot of abs memories, some more than obviously most, uh, whether you a uh, fan or anthem singer or whoever, you've been 25 years. A lot of stuff has happened there. This is going to be a really tough one, but maybe you got it. Did you have a favorite moment? You know, I, I don't know, man. There were some, there were some great things. I think, you know, looking back, I really loved, um, I've loved having the players from the other teams come say hi when they're doing warm ups and stuff. Like Brent Burns always is yelling at me when he, you know, mm. he's and in in a good way. Like he's such a great guy. And and I remember, you know, Ronick coming and I couldn't I couldn't stand Ronick, right? I couldn't stand <laughs> the way he played. I just I just didn't like that guy. And this is back when I was more of a fan than a, you know. Now now as I look back, I, I'm much more of a hockey fan than a homer. You know, yeah. I just love the game. Uh, but I remember I just couldn't stand the guy. And, and his last game in Denver, I think he played for the Sharks. And everybody knew it was kind of his final. And he skates over to the carpet and he's like, hey, man, I just want to tell you, best anthem singer, bar none in the league. And I was like, man, 
do you know how much crap I've talked about you over the years? And now, now I got to like, and he's like, that's awesome. You know? <laughs> so it was, it was really, it was really funny, you know, and Ronick's great. Ronick is a really good guy. And just all, you know, Sean Podine, when he got traded to the blues and would come, you know, give me knuckles when I was out there on the carpet. And mm. those were neat times, but I think probably the most powerful ones were, um, you know, I did the anthem right after Columbine happened and I did the mm. anthem right after nine 11 happened. And I did, mm. you know, so those were not necessarily happy memories, but they were very powerful because we all really wanted, I think a lot, you know, we all really wanted to sing the anthem and yeah. really wanted to kind of feel that. And so that was, you know, that was a lot of pressure. I was like, just do it. So everybody can sing along. I mean, that's kind of been my, my thing all along. Like, don't, don't mess with it. Just sing it straight. And so everybody can sing along with it. You don't need to do all the, you know, I can do that stuff, but it's not appropriate in my mind for what I want to do. Other people. Great. They could, they do a really good job with it. But for me, I just wanted to keep it pretty straight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you definitely go the traditional route and that's, that's my preferred version as well. Yeah. We just had that same comment. I was talking to Reed Lowe down in St. Louis and he was, we had the Marty and I had the pleasure of meeting Charles Glenn last year. And he came and supported our event this year. Yeah. Speaking and, of somebody that's right. an icon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, an icon, right? Yeah. And 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 beloved by the St. Oh, Louis yeah. Blues community. And yeah. and Reed said, you know what I love about that guy? Keep in mind he's from Moose Jaw, Canada. Right. Right. He said, I love the way he just approaches the song in its purest form and just sings it as it's meant to be sung. Yeah. And so uh, you know, same thing as you. So hey, wanted to um follow up with the, you know, with the Stanley cup. I noticed that it's on your arm here as I'm looking uh, across from you. Yeah. And, uh, you got to be part of some incredible moments. Tell us about, uh, you know, I've seen some pictures of, and you see videos of these Stanley cup celebrations that happen off the ice away from the public. Any, uh, any Jake Schroeder stories from, from the Stanley cup? You know, those guys were so cool. They were like my contemporaries back then. We were really close in age, right? Mm-hmm. Like and now they're, they're younger than my, kids true right (laughs) some of them are and and uh but back then those guys were so cool to include me and stuff and that was really from sean podian podian has always had this radar for people that need some extra attention and i was going through a a very rough period in my life and podes just could tell that i was struggling and so he would call me and be like hey come on we're all going out after the game and so i just started going out with those guys after the game and it was a really tight-knit group you know for for four or five years, it was a very tight group and they often spent a lot of time together after the games and, and not, you know, the the families were there and the wives were there. So it wasn't like a, you know, these, these guys going out and carousing, like everybody was carousing, right? Like, you know, the wives were right along along for the ride there too. So, but it was really cool. It was really, and I was really, really lucky that they included me in that stuff. So it was kind of a natural thing when they won the cup that they were, you know, they shared it. And they were really cool with me about it. I mean, one of my first stories that I remember, and it's before I did the anthem, I was a bartender at the Chop House. And the Chop House was the hockey bar in Denver. And visiting teams had come there, and the Avs came there almost every night after the games to eat. And uh, so they had the Stanley Cup party there after they beat Florida. And I remember the game was on, um, and it was, I think it had to be 2.30 in the morning in Florida. But the game was on in the bar when when, uh, Huey Krupp scored the goal and they won the Cup. And then... They had the parade, and then they had the party at the chop house afterwards. And I remember they had cordoned off the whole, like, 300 yards around the outside of the chop house. It was marked off with police tape because there were so many people. And I remember Sackick and Forsberg taking the cup out of the chop house out to the police line and letting people hold the cup and touch it and see and sign autographs and stuff. And this is after those guys had been up for, like, 
two days, right? Um. <laughs> I mean, that's that was something that was that was something before I even did the anthem. I was like, this is really different. This is really a different yeah. deal than the other sports. This is like they they are really excited to share this with mm-hmm. people. Right. Yeah, I remember that whole chop house thing too. We used to sneak in there once in a while. That was a long, long time ago for me, even before Cindy. And um, but I didn't know you were a bartender there. Number one, you probably made me some drinks over the years. And um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, unless you were going, hey, Opie, Opie. Yeah, exactly. Opie. I was like, you are last. <laughs> you were, oh, that's no drinks for you. Yeah. So so uh, um, small as you can, you get beer out of Schroeder's. Uh, but um, like. That yeah, like you got to see that even before. Did you know any of the players then during that time period? I, I met them because they lived down there, right? So I met I met uh, Rene Corbet and uh, Stefan Yell and Eric Lacroix. Eric Lacroix has been okay. a, a dear friend for decades now, and I, I his his father made such a had such a influence on me, you know, being terrified of him at first, hmm. and then realizing what an amazing man he was and what hmm. he did. And Eric is, is very much in the mold of his father as his brother, Marty. And, and, uh, I mean, those, that's a good family, but I just became friends with those guys before I did the anthem for them. Hmm. Um, and I can remember like we played at Brendan's pub down, down underneath Crocs all the time down at 16th and market. Right. And I can remember one of the first times I met those guys. Cause you can see everything when you're the lead singer, on stage, right? You can see the whole club and you like, I'd be singing and you could just catch like, this guy is getting shot down by every girl in this bar or whatever. Like you could just see stuff like yeah. that. You're like, dude, Randy, look was that Shazi? Yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> not Shazi. I did but, used to go, but it was there. like, but I'd like, look at Randy, Randy guy. I'd be like, Randy, look at the guy in the green shirt. Like this guy is just flaming out over and over again. You know, and Randy's like, which one? I'm like that one. So we'd watch that. But I remember looking out and Brendan's had, and this is back when everybody smoked in the bars yeah. or whatever. And there was like a divider. And I can remember Eric was like leaning this long before they met their wives or whatever. And they, and Eric's like leaning over this divider talking to this girl. And he's really cool. Cause he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm a hockey player or whatever. And I, <laughs> and I looked and, and I saw something happening behind him and Yeller had grabbed like a pack of matches off the bar and was like, like crouched down behind Eric and was lighting this match and then holding it under his rear end. Right. <laughs> and all of a sudden I just see Eric just go, Whoa, like, oh, he's talking to this girl. Right. You know? uh, I was like, those guys are different. Yeah, <laughs> those, guys, those guys are awesome. Right. 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 And, uh, and, and they, that was, that was kind of how it went. Those guys were just fun to go hang out with. And then I got to do the anthem and then I was kind of, then you were one another of them. Level, yeah, well, no, yeah. but I was another level of onion up, uh, got to, you know, intimately, yeah hang out with those guys and do stuff and they trusted me. So, yeah. So there's two there. So I didn't know you, you kind of had a little bit of connection to cup number one yeah. and a huge connection to cup number two. Yeah. You drank out of the cup. Yeah. I got Sean, Sean, let me, uh, let me do that. That was pretty cool. Nice. Was, what was, was it? Pretty, what was in there? Like some really crappy champagne that was, and this was, <laughs> this was like a little bit after the, they won. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't it during the celebrations. I remember it was two or three weeks after they won. And it was in town for something or the bare naked ladies were here or something like that. But it was, so it was kind of cool to get to do that. You know? Wow. You have pictures of that? No, no. no. Most of the <laughs> yeah. really good stuff, there were no pictures and that was, that's the way it should be. You know, that's, yeah, the, that's true. You know, that's, although it does lead into my next question, which is, you know, you've been doing this for 25 years and the world has changed a lot in the last 25 years. I mean, literally this is to Marty's point earlier before the birth of the iPhone, right? Yeah. You, iPhone was in 2007. So, right. um, but a lot of a lot of things, you know, have happened. I mean, nine eleven you mentioned, Columbine, the Afghan and Iraq wars. You've you've been doing this through five presidents. Um, what is a moment in, from that perspective uh, that you really remember in your role uh, singing the national anthem? 
Well, bring in, you know, in the last few years, they've been, you know, Steve Johnson runs a game day down there and does such a good job. And they, um, they've really gone out, you know, COVID notwithstanding, cause that just screwed everything up for everyone. But before COVID really, really did a very respectful and cool job with the uh, military appreciation nights. And so I've been lucky enough to escort two or three of the world war two veterans out, you know, on the carpet. Uh, and those were really powerful moments for me to get to, you know, to, to get to kind of help put that together in, in a small way for me. I mean, it was Steve did all the, the lifting and that, that crew down at Pepsi center and crew at ball arena did all the heavy lifting on that stuff and was really amazing. But to get to walk out there with a Tuskegee airman, who's a friend of mine, right? Like that was, you know, I could hear the guys on the bench. We walked by the guys on the bench and I could hear those guys going like, no way. Like, wow. <laughs> you know, like mm. these are the hockey players and they were so, their eyes were as big as mine. You know, this guy is such a legend. And then, the the greatest ceremonial puck drop in the history of the NHL was was at one of the military appreciation nights when we brought Leila Morrison, who was a nurse uh, who served in World War II in Normandy and then all the way into Germany, um, who I got to know and is just like one of the you know most lovely people I've ever met, and I just have the biggest crush on her. She's so wonderful. Yeah. And um, so a ceremonial puck drop, as everybody knows, what happens is the person that's going to do the puck, they go out to the edge of the carpet and they call the two captains over from the opposite teams and the captains come out and shake hands and they shake hands with the person who's going to drop the puck and and then the, they hand the puck to the person who's going to drop it and they look and they take a picture and smile and then they, they drop the puck, you know, just gently and then the captain of the home team pulls the puck back, he wins the face off, picks it up, another picture, they hand it back, cut back, you know, the puck back to the person dropping it. Well, Leela didn't do that. Leela, we got, you know, it was uh, Buffalo. They were playing Buffalo that night when Jack Eichel still played there. So Landy and Eichel get called out and they skate over and they, they're, they're, they're really excited about meeting Leila, you know, and she's just so cute and so lovely. And, and they were like, you know, really sweet with her. And, and they hand the puck to her and they're like, okay, drop the puck. And she's like, like fetch, like throws it. And the puck goes flying over to the, to the boards. Right. And Landy looks back at me and starts howling. He's laughing as he goes and skates to go get it. And I'm laughing and Eichel's laughing. It was just, it was so funny. It was so, it was just great. She's like, Nope, I'm not just going to drop. Here you go. Go get it. Go get it. Yeah. It was, that was just so funny. Terry Fry and I, cause he knows her too. So Terry Fry and I laughed about that for a long time. That was, that was great. Yeah, I remember that. I, I remember her doing that, but I don't remember that part. I'll have to. I mean, yeah. you got tapes of that somewhere. Uh, they have it on the Avs website, I think. Oh, yeah. they do. Yeah. yeah, that is. You had her at one of your events, I think. Yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, over at DU. So, um, yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. Like those are great stories, and I I I'm not surprised that they were tied to military and around military. Um, and but uh, certainly you you got to do something that most anthem singers don't get to do. And that's become really close and literally friends with players on the teams, like close friends. And, and you developed several of those meaning, meaningful relationships, including some of them that you've introduced me to over the years. But um, tell us about some of the most important ones that, that even today that still last today. And I think I can think of one right off the top of my yeah, head. Well, I mean, obviously Sean, you know, Sean and I are still really like brothers, you know, we're still really good friends and Sean was a, you know, a savior to me and, and really taught me a lot about doing things for other people really kind of cemented in me, my desire to, to do nonprofit stuff really just kind of, that just became something that was in my blood from meeting Sean. And so that was a, he was a real uh, gift to, to pop into my life. Uh, you know, probably, you know, Cody McLeod 
was another guy that was just a really good friend of mine and, and I spent a lot of time with him and, and just really love who that guy is. That guy is, you know, he's an undrafted free agent, right? Like everybody in hockey gets drafted. Still plays. And he still plays. He, yeah. he had his thousandth game on my birthday. Oh, wow. This year, January 7th for the Iowa wild. And he's a player coach for those guys. Mm-hmm. And he just loves it. And he loves coaching and he loves the game. And, and that guy works so hard. I mean, he was never given anything, you know, he's not a, you know, I mean, he's, he's a, he's an athlete, right? He's a great, he's a gifted athlete, but he just works his bag off and it's just an unbelievable, you know, he really was an inspiration to me in terms of working, working and, and staying at something, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then I think, you know, Landy obviously is a good buddy of mine and, and has, he does so much stuff that people never find out about and never know about. And I really appreciate that about him. And I've always tried to kind of be like that with those guys where I don't ever want them to see me coming and be like, Oh God, you know, here he comes. He's going to ask us for something or whatever. So I think that, you know, for the most part, I've really been, you know, I think those guys really trust me not to do that, you know, and that's one of the reasons I get to, you know, that I've become close friends with some of those guys. Cause it's not a transactional thing. I'm just like, they're just guys. And, and Gabe especially was a, a, a just a really bright light in this kid that, uh, that I knew in his life, uh, Jake Sensenbaugh who passed away last year and, uh, Gabe, you know, absolutely became Jake's best friend. And this was at a time when Jakey was, you know, he had a blood infection. So he lost some fingers and he couldn't even play video games anymore and was really down and, you know, this is a kid that grew up with this horrible disease, this nerve tumor disorder, and and just was an old soul and and really a, I mean, like a million times more brave than than I've ever been, certainly. Mm-hmm. You know, and just was just a real good perspective giver. And and Gabe was was a true friend of this kid's. Yeah, you know, it's 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 interesting that you mention him because I I. I told Mike about him yesterday and one of the times um, you had a uh, one of your events, it was the, it was the putt putt golf thing. And then we went over to that bar afterwards and every that you had a, a real who's who that night. There were NHL referees, there were players, there were ex players or current players and everybody got matched up with a celebrity, I guess, for the, the putt putt thing. And I went back to that bar and, and I don't know if you remember this, you and I were standing at the bar together and I looked over in the other room and, and, uh, Landy had a big giant foam cowboy hat on and he was, uh, he had his arm around Jake and this whole room's full of all these people, but, but, uh, Landy's wanted to sit with Jake and talk to Jake. And I went over there and I, I took, uh, uh, like chatted with the, the two of them for a little bit. And I said, um, okay, if I can take a picture of you guys. And as literally I did, and not more than 30 seconds later, I got a text from aunt from Landy said, I, I want to copy that picture. Yeah. Like literally. And this is all true. I mean, yeah. it was, and I, I agree with you. Great, great guy. And I shared that picture with his agent too. He said, that's, that's who this guy is. Yeah, he absolutely is like that. I, I mean, I remember talking to Gabe's dad saying, I don't know what you did, but he's a great kid. And, and it's not a, this isn't a, you know, I, a lot of our events, Gabe and Jakey would be there mm-hmm. and that was not time that I ever interrupted those guys. Yeah. That was, that was Gabe's time with Jake and, and, you know, they spent a lot of time together and, and it was really, uh, you know, when Jakey finally, you know, decided he was, he was ready because it's, you know, he was going to have to spend so much time in the hospital. He just, he finally just made the decision on his own. He's like, you know what? I'm just going to let this run its course. 
And that was, that was tough for all of us. That was really, really brutal. But at the same time, it was Jake making the decision, you know, and, and, um, this was a very brave kid and a very old soul. And he, he gave way more to me than I ever gave to him. And I'm, I'm positive Gabe would say the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, my best Jakey story is when, you know, he had a, this, this disease, this, this tumor thing would attach itself to a nerve and then grow and grow and grow. So Jakey had a, a stump for a long time that was as big as a adult thigh when he was a little kid. And so eventually he had to get that taken off, you know, it was um, part, you know, like his leg, but it was bigger than a, a human male thigh. Right. Cause it took too much of his blood and it was prone to infection. If they said to take it off. And so I remember going to see him at children's and this is, I, I hadn't really known his family that much, but I knew Jakey for a couple of years before that. And then I, so I went to go see him at children's and I, and I kind of leaned in, he just gotten done with the surgery and I kind of leaned in and I'm like, you know, how you doing? And I got teary <laughs> and Jake mm. and Jake looks up at me. <laughs> he looks at me. He's like, why are you crying? <laughs> <laughs> he's right. <laughs> I was like, you know what? Good point, dude. Yeah. Right. <laughs> And that's just, that's who that kid was, man. He was just a, he was a beauty. And Gabe, I, I know that Gabe would say, just like I do, that was, that, you know, that's like no one Elvis. Like I got to, I got to hang out with Jakey. Yeah. You know, and so did Gabe. Really cool. Mm-hmm. Wow. Hey, speaking of, uh, I'm not sure how we transitioned this one, but speaking of cool kids to hang out with, you also get to hang out with another dog pod guest, Mr. Mark Mosier. I do. And I know that his friendship with you is quite special too. Yeah, it's you know it's funny. I try not to ever admit that, and I and I, and I and I try to make fun of him at every turn and pull practical jokes on him. Well, and, you have the perfect opportunity. You know, yeah, I mean, I always do. You know, like I, I accidentally wrapped his car with eleven hundred linear feet of saran wrap one night at the, at the center, and you know stuff like that. But I but that said, like Mose is a brother, and I I do anything for that. I'd take a bullet for Mark Moser. I love that guy. Yeah, he's a, he's, he's a true friend and a, and just a a real inspiration to me and just a really, really good man. And I'm glad to know him, but I hope that you edit that part out. Cause I don't, I don't want him <laughs> exactly. to think I'm getting, soft, let's go back you know? to yeah. the Saran wrap. Yeah. <laughs> Get back to the Saran wrap. <laughs> what, what was that called? Like, was were you the first uh, suspect on his list? Well, you know, that was a series of things. He had this FJ cruiser, this, this silver FJ. And, um, so the first year I did the Saran wrap and, and then I waited around till the end of the game. Cause I could, I'd get done singing the anthem. I'd go out in the parking lot and pull off the prank. And then I'd, you know, watch the game and come out before he'd come out and I'd wait, you know, <laughs> wait for him and get a picture of it. And, and, uh, so that was a good one. Then the next year I, I taped 300 pink, uh, helium balloons to his, to his FJ. <laughs> And then the year after that, I found this magnetic bumper sticker that was hilarious. It said, cowboy butts drive me nuts. <laughs> and so I stuck that on the back of his FJ, right? And took a picture of me like pointing at it, smiling right, right, and everything. Right. And I'm like, this is going to be great. And I don't even need to wait around for this. Because then <laughs> I'm just going to, it's going to be a couple days before right. somebody points it out to me. He's not yes. going to see it right away. Right. So like after two weeks, I hadn't heard anything from him. And so I was like, uh, you know, I text him like, hey, how's your car, buddy? He's <laughs> right. like, what do you mean? I go, how's your car? Is it running good? Everything cool? He goes, What'd you do? I'm like, nothing. And then I sent him the picture of me, you know, pointing at the bumper sticker on the back of his car. And like, it was like a five minute delay for him getting back to me. And then he's like, 
that's not my car. What a burn. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no. I said, whose car? He goes, that's Benjamin Hockman from The Post. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, oh, no. Like, there goes my gig. Like, yeah, I'm yeah. totally getting fired. You know, that's like, right. You know, I don't even, I didn't, at that point, I'd never, I didn't know Hockman at all. And I'm like, oh, my God, what if he reacts? And he thinks I'm like, it's some <laughs> awful slur that I'm, you know, like some mean <laughs> thing, I'm, which was not at all how it was yeah. intended, right? It's just, right. just for Moe's, you know, and, uh, and so we got a hold of Hockman and he thought it was hilarious, which is good, right? And he's a great guy. Benjamin Hockman's a great guy. But that was like one of the greatest prank reversals <laughs> of all time. He's like, that's not my car. You're sweating your career. Yeah, I was like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> wow. Front page of the Denver Post, you know. That's right. That's right. Someone who had the, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, had the power to burn you down. Yeah, yeah. well, good thing you didn't saran wrap uh, Pierre Lacroix's car or something. Huh? Yeah, I, think, I don't think I can get into that parking area. <laughs> it's like, yeah, or Scott Parker's car. Yeah, yeah. Scott Parker's car. Well, Parksy would have thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he, he, was, he was a good buddy, so he wouldn't, he wouldn't have tuned me up, I don't think. <laughs> so, you know, um, I recently lost my dad, and I, I know that uh, you lost your dad several years ago. You've shared with me... Um, and private times, um, how much the national anthem means to you tied to your dad. Yeah. And I lo- I don't think a lot of people know that story, but it's really powerful. And if you, you'd be willing to share that. Sure. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, my, my dad and I weren't super close, you know, but I, I, you know, I did respect him obviously. And he was a, he was a very patriotic guy, not, not in a jingoist fashion, but he was just, he was a very patriotic guy, you know, it was, and it was how he felt. He didn't spread that around. It was just, was private, but it was, uh, it meant a lot to him. He was in the Air Force during the Vietnam era, and he would be the first one to say, you know, if he said, were you in the Air Force during Vietnam? He'd say, like, I was, I served during that era. I was not in Vietnam. Those poor guys had it, had it way rough, and I was not part of that, you know? Hmm. And his, uh, he was a interpreter. They sent him to, uh, before they had the, the D-Lab, and, uh, or before they had the, uh, the DLI in Monterey, they had, they sent him to Yale to learn Chinese, to learn Mandarin, hmm. so he could speak and write Mandarin. And um, they would have the, spy planes or whatever would fly over and, and intercept Chinese radio broadcasts and then bring them back to him. So his job was to, you know, to, to uh, interpret those and then forward the ones onto intelligence that, that he needed to do. And, and he didn't even really tell me that until very later in his, it was still like a secret thing until like later in his life, even though it was like, you know, 30 year old technology or whatever. And he's, Uh you know, but he was very serious about it. Um, so he, he, uh, you know, I told you we grew up going to CU games and I never really saw my dad cry except maybe once or twice, you know, like that's like, I don't even know if I remember him doing it, but, um, he was not, I'm, I'm way more emotional. Like, you know, my kids were like, are you going to cry at Tate's wedding and my oldest daughter's wedding? I'm like, no. And Lily, my youngest one, who's just a huge smart ass was like, dad, you cried during the sound of music. You were totally <laughs> crying at her wedding. Right. Yeah. My dad was not like that. So. Yeah. Um, so every time we'd go to these CU games and they play the national anthem, my dad would have tears coming out and streaming down his mm. cheeks. And that was kind of freaked us out. Like my sister and I we were like, what's going, you know, what was that? What's that about? So when he was dying, I asked him, we were having dinner and he had, my dad had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And so he, he decided not to treat it. He just was going to let it run its course. He didn't want to, didn't want to die in a hospital. And that's how he made his decision. He said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to die in a hospital. This thing's going to be fast. And I just, that's how I want to go. So I was like, all right. So, um, I asked him, I said, why'd you always have, why'd you always cry during the anthem at the CU games? And he said, well, during Vietnam, my office overlooked the tarmac where I would, where I would get the, you know, where I do my work. And every day these C-130s would fly in and unload all the bodies of the kids that had been killed that day. And they'd load them onto refrigerated planes to be flown home to be buried. 
and he just couldn't couldn't stand it. They play the mm-hmm. anthem while they did that as part of the protocol, and he just couldn't stand it. And it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a political statement. It wasn't a protest statement or it wasn't anything like that other than just, it was just tragic. And he just couldn't, he just couldn't stand it. Couldn't stand to see all those kids getting sent home in a, in a His memories plane. flooding back every time yeah. that happened, you know, to the point where it'd make him cry during the, you know, he'd hear the anthem and that would, you know, a guy that was not emotional would, you know. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. I know yes. that's a, that's yeah. a personal family story there. So appreciate that. Well, it's a yeah. great story. It's a great, it's when I'm, when I get. When I would get excited about whatever game it was in, that's what I would try and think of to, okay, focus. Yeah. Focus, you know. Well, that's a, certainly honoring of your father, and, and you're doing some incredible work, I know, honoring the greatest generation, uh, a huge passion of yours uh, with your D-Day Leadership Academy as part of PAL. Uh, give us a picture of the work that you've done with these veterans and, and really the, the generations that are looking ahead and you, you, that you're helping to to know the Genesis greatest generation and uh, what drives you. Yeah. Well, so I was lucky enough to get to escort world war two veterans back to France starting in 2011 with a different charity. And, and I got to know a bunch of those guys and, and it, you know, obviously meant a lot to me. Um, I, I've always been a, a history nerd. So I really enjoyed going to Normandy and, and seeing all that history firsthand and, and meeting the French in that area and, and being with the veterans as the French greeted them and seeing how powerful that was. And then realizing that, that, those would be good lessons for, you know, like police officers. Those would be good lessons for, for anybody, but especially for students, you know, for young kids. Cause they don't, they get like a, you know, a week of world war two or two days of world war two in history. Now it's just not really talked about that much. They don't get a lot of that in, in high school. Like we got a lot when I was growing up and, and a lot, you know, nuances of the war and different things about it. And um, so I just kind of had the idea to, uh, to start bringing some, some police officers and some students you know, some, some students that would not have had the opportunity to do a trip like that and bringing them over to France so they can see and learn some really true, truly wonderful American stories. And they're not all wonderful. You know, it was a segregated army, segregated armed forces back then. And the, and the African-Americans were treated horribly. So we cover that. We talk about that and how that's changed and how that those guys had to fight two enemies a lot of times. And they still perform their duty with valor and with heroism and, 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 basically enabled us to have a successful invasion of Europe. I mean, that was a, the African-American soldiers in Normandy is, is a lot of people don't know about how much they did to make that successful. Um, so we cover that. Um, but there are a lot of leadership lessons over there. So we actually have turned that into our main program. Now that we're not doing sports at PAL anymore, we don't have the support of the, uh, the officers that were assigned to us from the DPD for 50 years. Um, so, so it's just me. So we run this leadership program where I take students over to Normandy and, um, and they learn these leadership lessons. And then to help augment that, to help pay for that, I take uh, uh, corporate and family groups. So our first corporation that we took over there for our business trip was uh, Lallier, Mike Lallier, who owns a roofing company and uh, Lallier Construction. And, and uh, so we took him over there and, and kind of ran him through the paces as our guinea pig for our corporate program. And it went really, really well. So we're already getting a lot of inquiries for the fall for that. And, um, and that helps me afford to bring students over there that couldn't, all the students have to pay for is their airfare. And I, I still have them do that because it's gives them skin in the game. And then it also gives them a metric, right? If they, if they know what they, I did five bake sales and I sold candy at church 10 weekends in a row. And I did a cleanup and I, because I did those things, I got to go to another continent 
on an airplane, mm-hmm. right? And they see how big the world is. The world isn't just this corner and the world isn't just these guys in their neighborhood that are, you know, this hierarchy of, you know, of people in their neighborhood or whatever. It's the world is huge and they have the ability to go there. Those kids don't get told they can do stuff very often. So it really just has been a combination of a few different things that are really wonderful. So we're expanding that and, um, and really growing that program. The goal is to take a hundred kids over there every summer on scholarship. And so we're, wow. we're, we're getting there with that. You know? well, what does it cost to scholarship one kid? $2,500. Okay. So that's our goal is to raise enough money to send a hundred kids over there on scholarship every summer. And, uh, and, we're, you know, we're, we're making our way towards that, towards that goal. So, uh, we're going to take the program nationwide for next summer. And we've already got inquiries from Florida and from Ohio and from, and I like to throw a, a police officer from their area, uh, as a chaperone in with the trip and, and unbeknownst to the kids, this is a, this is an officer. So at the end of the trip, he or she can go, well, by the way, I'm a, I'm a cop in your neighborhood or I'm a cop. And they, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to hate or generalize about someone that you kind of liked hanging out with. And you got to do this this wonderful learning experience with, you know, right. so we can't, you know, I can't solve all these problems. We have some big problems right now. I can't solve them, but I can at least maybe get the, get the rudder moving, you know, yeah. to start. Yeah. Your program is well, amazing. And, and you mentioned a couple ones there. I, uh, same shout out to Michael Lallier. I mean, where he's hosted you and I, yeah. To a lots and lots of games. Oh yeah, I've snuck, into, I've snuck into his box yeah. over and over again. Yeah, and I think that's where you met him, right? Is one <laughs> yeah, day you were there, and yeah. I, I was like, "Hey, come on up! I'm in this box." And <laughs> and um, but but what you um didn't really tie into what makes this even on the corporate level. And I I worked a corporate job for many many years, so um, and I know uh Michael and Kimberly went over there, and they just loved it. And yeah. um, and I asked them about it, but what people don't realize is you actually. Um, your nonprofit owns a place in St. Mary Glee, which is the first um, town that was liberated in, during D-Day. And so there's an incredible amount of history right there oh, yeah. that you get to actually, how old is that building that you guys About 400 in? years is what they think. 400 okay. years. And, yeah. and um, amazing place that, that, um, uh, that has all kinds of history, all just like within blocks. Not you were just, showing yeah. me a book, like, and there's your your house, literally as two GIs are walking down the right, street, right? Like, I'm like, whoa, that's the house that it, that we're staying. And in it's right not now. just World War II. I mean, the Hundred Years' War was fought there. There's a marker in the square of the church that's a 1900 year old Roman marker that showed the troops how to get to England. You know, yeah. all roads lead to Rome, and these Roman soldiers walked through there. There's a lot of Roman ruins in that area. A lot of Viking ruins in that area that were just after the Roman period. Um, you know, the Celts came there and, and created the hedgerows mm-hmm. by clearing the rocks out of the fields. They're still there today. And they're still there today. You know, and that was, uh, that's the hedgerow country is what they call it. And it, mm-hmm. there's just so much that's, you know, I, and I love that stuff. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, the kids that come on the program obviously like history or they wouldn't go, Yeah, but it's pretty, it's pretty neat to put your hands on a church that's from the 11th century, you know, like, right. or, uh, you know, uh, you're, you're looking at some Viking ruins or some Roman ruins of this bathhouse that are from, you know, AD 200 or AD 300, you know, it's pretty, I love yeah. that stuff. And it's, it's yeah. neat for those kids to get a perspective. It's not just the kids. Cause yeah, like, right. uh, like even, I mean, to fund these programs, of course you need to get, get grants. You need to get yeah. corporations. And for all my corporate buddies out there, which I got plenty of them. Um, if you're looking for a leadership program, this is as good as it gets. Cause not only are you supporting these kids, right. you're getting to go 
and be part of history. Yeah, it's a great experience for the corporate folks that go over yeah. there. We have some, you know, that we have some stuff that they that are provided to them that's pretty cool. They get jeep tours through the hedgerows, and we do some some really special meals with them where the people cook from that area. Some some ladies from around that area cook special meals for mm. you know for these groups that come over, and it's a traditional French meal, and they tell them about it and tell them how they made it, and it's it's pretty neat. But then also realizing that you know when the corporate folks go over there, they're they're reinvesting in their own communities. Mm-hmm. Right, they're reinvesting in a kid being able to go over there. That sure. these kids wouldn't dream of going to France probably until the opportunities there for them. And then it's like it's not just going to France and hearing, you know, and, and having experiencing a totally different culture, but it's learning some great. It's really easy to pierce the kid thing with these lessons because they're right in front of them. Yeah, no, I hear you, and I've been there. So to that house, I can vouch for it. It's amazing, and 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 uh, I know if uh, Michael Michael says the same exact thing. So um, along the those same lines, you've had the privilege. You mentioned it already to meet some incredible World War II veterans and heroes, mm-hmm. and and uh, f- sacrificed almost everything. Some of them, so, uh, friends for sure, and. Um, uh, I know one of those guys, you haven't mentioned him yet, stands above the rest. Of course, I'm talking about Frank. Yeah. And um, tell us about that relationship, because that's, um, I met him through you as well. And then right. another, like, I mean, like you say, you get so much from, from someone else that even, you might even just met a few times in your lifetime. Sure. Well, Frank was, was um, very much like a lot of guys in his generation that when they got home from the war, it was like, you know, quit crying, go back to work. Like you're, we're done. And so Frank didn't talk about the war. His family didn't know what he did. I think maybe his wife might've had an idea. Um, but when his wife was, was sick and was dying in 2013, I believe his son, Richard was, was speaking to her and, and, uh, she, she said, Hey, listen, after I go, your father wants to go back to Normandy. And Richard was like, my dad, dad wasn't in Normandy, mom. He was in the middle of Pacific in a troop ship. And she goes, talk to him because he wants to go back to Normandy. Mm. And so Richard at that point was like, were you in Normandy? Like, what are you talking about? Because they thought he was just, he was a coast guard crewman on a Navy ship. And, uh, and turns out Frank, not only was in Normandy was a crewman, uh, from the chase, the Samuel chase on a Higgins boat. And his job was to lower the ramp in the first wave at Omaha, where they delivered the big red one, uh, to, you know, to the, the middle of this horrible, horrible experience on Omaha beach first wave. And, um, so, you know, him starting to tell these stories, there's a famous interview with him and Tom Brokaw that Brokaw starts crying, you know, and like Brokaw crying is like seeing your dad start crying. And like, you're like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. Hey, what's going on? You know, like, uh, but Frank started talking about it then and really, and then he had this whole kind of renaissance at, towards the end of his life, the last, you know, eight years of his life, he got to meet all these, these French, you know, the French in that area will, will do anything for a World War II veteran. You know, they, they, they want them to come to their homes and eat and cook and, and, and spend time with them. It's like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an incredible experience for the Normans, which is, it makes sense. Right. And then, so there's this wonderful bond, this wonderful relationship between the, the World War II veterans and the French in that area. And so Frank fully, fully lived in, in that world. And it was, it was really great hearing him tell stories. Um, you know, we got to do a lot of stuff and we actually named the house for him. We call, you know, it's Maison Frank DeVita now. Mm. So we named, Is it really? Yeah. Oh. So we named that our building in, in St. Mary Glees for him, uh, because of everything he gave to us. And he, and he loved the students and he loved 
just spending time with him and, and really opened up a lot. And you could tell how painful it was for him. I mean, he got teary every time he would talk about his experiences. We had uh, nine news was here one time and Gary Shapiro did such a great interview with him and he's telling a story and, and he's teary and Richard and I are in the kitchen hearing this story going, you know, Richard, Richard's like, I've never heard this story. Holy mm. cow. You know, but his job was to lower the ramp. So he often would tell the story about the first wave. He can hear the bullets hitting the front. You know, there's only one piece of metal on that whole boat and it's the ramp. And um, so he could hear the bullets hitting the ramp, but he knew what was going to happen when he lowered it. There were 30 guys in the boat. And so he pretended not to hear the coxswain when he's telling him to lower the ramp. So he didn't lower it. And so he yelled at him and he finally lowered it. And out of 30 guys, only three of them made it to shore. You know, kid died in his arms on the boat, you know, basically because he had stopped the bullets that would have hit Frank. You know, mm. so I mean, just some unbelievably traumatic experiences, and and um, and just really wonderful to get to to have these guys help us with our program, and love to meet the kids, and and talk to them, and explain to them what it was like. Though, like I said, those are lessons that really pierce the whole kid thing to learn about leadership, to teach them about leadership from these guys, you know, from these amazing men, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's it's a real blessing for me to get to do that, and that's one of the reasons it's okay for me to to move on from this Anthem thing. Like right now is the time that I need to be spending in my life to really make this thing successful and really make it happen to bring as many kids over there as I can. You know, I'm 54. I'm not going to be able to do this for another 40 years. You know, I need to get on this now and make this happen. And, and, uh, so, so looking back, that's one of the reasons it's okay for me to kind of move on from all this, you know, and, and Mm -hmm. uh, to, to turn the baton over to somebody else and, uh, Mm -hmm. and, 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 take my, my wonderful memories and my wonderful lessons and, and move forward with it. So. Right. And your girls wonder why you cry so much. You have all yeah, these right. incredible stories, right? Well, yeah. it's sound of music too. Oh, right? I mean, that's a, yeah. that's a pretty, pretty powerful. Yeah. Wow. Hey, well, speaking of family, I understand you're surrounded by some beautiful girls yourself and, mm-hmm. and, uh, tell us about your family. Well, I have a, a, a amazing wife, Rachel, who really gives me a lot of strength to get all this stuff done and a lot of, uh, you know, is so supportive and, and, you know, when I'm gone so much doing this, she understands why, and she knows why and how important it is to me. And I'm not gone just to be gone. I'm gone to accomplish this. And so our whole family has been there and our, our kids have been over there a bunch of times to, to be able to come looking at a picture right now of Frank at mm-hmm. Omaha beach with Lily in the cemetery. Yep. And she's a little kid, but you can tell she's really understanding. He's talking about his friends that were killed that are buried under those white crosses. That uh, and she's you know kind of stunned. You can tell in that picture. Mm-hmm. So my kids have have been able to have really wonderful memories with these guys and really you know firsthand get to see how these these lessons get passed down. How important it is, you know. So I have uh, Tate is my oldest. She's twenty four and she got married last November to a, a really wonderful kid, a really wonderful guy. He's a marine officer. And then uh, Quinn, my middle, is fifteen. She'll be sixteen this summer and. Uh, it's just my my unique. She's just a really different kid and, and really cool and really really. But all my kids are way smarter than I am, so I don't know how. You know, I'm not really sure how that happened. But uh, and then Lily is, she is she's the one that's going to age me. She is a world class smart ass and it's just a re- <laughs> really great kid that just is a, a huge heart and loves performing and is really funny and and just really a 
really a neat kid. And both Quinn and Lily got to do the anthem over at the uh, ball arena this year, which is pretty neat. That was pretty fun. And Quinn, you know, they, you know, I'd get texts from the guys like, well, you had a good run, you know, this is <laughs> before I started to sh- right. decide to shut it down. And, and it was, you know, it was pretty funny because they both did such a good job over you there. Did. So it's, a, it's okay to walk away. Yeah. It's all right. So, uh, you know, you and I are both um, fathers of three daughters and not always the easiest thing, as you just mentioned there. But uh, uh, you've been blessed. You have an NCAA athlete is yeah. one of them. And then, as you just mentioned, both of them saying the other two younger ones both sang at the national anthems at, at Avs games this year. Yeah. And um, uh, we were we were together on one of them, the first one. And um, what was it like to watching your daughters do that? You know, I wasn't nervous. They were both really good. So I wasn't nervous that they were going to mess it up. They're both really good singers. And, and um, it was just cool. It was just cool. You know, it was like, uh, I didn't, you know, I think a lot of parents, oh, I, I, Rachel was super, super nervous about it. I'm like, why are you nervous? These guys are they're awesome. They're so good. They're going to nail this. And people are going to love it. And they did. So I mm-hmm. just, I didn't really feel nervous or any kind of sense of that. I just was just really swollen with pride. I just was really I just felt so much pride, and I always feel pride for these girls because mm-hmm. they, they just they always amaze me. And it doesn't mean we don't battle, you know, right? They're teenagers, and, yeah, sure. and we sure. constantly battle. You know, the the phones thing is a, you know, everybody that's got kids that are in their teens knows about the phone battles, right? Oh yeah. So we try to you know try and stay up on that, and that's a I think general generationally this is that's a big fight for all a of challenge us. for all it of really us. is mm-hmm. because and and you know I think about that we were talking about doing a reunion show with Opie. Mm-hmm. I haven't gone to see a whole lot of live music, but a couple of times when I've gone to see a band, I'm like, every single person has their phone up in front of their face recording. That, like, are you going to seriously just go back and just watch the phone video of this band? Like, put your, you know, we didn't have to, we didn't ever see that. You know, I shut it down in 2012, so it was before, you know, these high res videos you could make mm-hmm. on your phone for the most part, and and I. It's kind of horrifying to me to see that so much. I mean, I took Quinn loves the who and the who was one of my favorite bands. And I took her to see the who over at Pepsi center. And, uh, you know, it was her first rock concert, you know, and, and some guy in front of us had his iPad, like this huge iPad, like (laughs) held it up for the whole show. I'm like, what are you going to do with that? It's going to sound like crap. Right. And it's that, you know, like you're going to zoom in on Daltrey, like with the, you know, with your fingers and like, just enjoy the show. Like, what do you, you know, what exactly is it that you're capturing? I don't understand that. And maybe I'm, it's pretty clear that I could be missing something, but like, <laughs> like you're seriously going to like you and your buddy, you're going to invite all your buddies over and watch this iPad video of the who, right? Right. Like, why would you do that? So I don't know. I just, it, it that freaks me out a little bit. You know? I, yeah, no, boy, does, does that sum it up in terms of phone usage, right? And our, yeah. our kids and the generation yeah. between us. So, yeah. um, well, Hey, speaking of, uh, of uh, uh, luckily it's not on video. We this one this question comes from the old dogs, and um, you you made a return to hockey, and we were blessed to have you in the old dogs over forty locker room with us, and the guys were all excited. But your career was cut short by this controversial fight, resulting you know, in Opie gone bad, going to the penalty box. No, you know what? I probably would have I probably would have played some more. I tore my quad tendon like two months after that, so that that took me out for a year or so. And I, you know what? You know what it was when I was young and I played rec hockey and I was a jackass. I really was. I was awful. And I, I look back on that with a lot of regret. And thankfully I've been able to meet some of these guys that I had these feuds with over years and apologize to them. And, and, uh, you know, it's just some, 
some anti-bully thing that clicks in and then I just kind of lose it. And, uh, and so I played with the old dogs that season and I hadn't had a single penalty for anything <laughs> the whole season. <laughs> and I was really enjoying it. It was really fun. Yeah. And I think cause everybody's older and everybody's you not good. Yeah, <laughs> right, I mean, right. We're not there. Nobody's going to, there are no scouts at those games. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. And, and it's just fun and it's fun. The locker room's fun and it's a good time. And, and, uh, you know, and then at the, the very last game of the season, some guy like two hands a goalie, you know, and I'm on defense. <laughs> so I just chop him on the top of his freezers. It's not going to hurt him. And I'm like, get out of the crease, like knock it off. Don't, don't do that. And then, you know, then it escalates from there. And then we both get two minutes and I'm skating back over the box. And I see this guy, like he turns around, he's coming back towards <laughs> me. I'm like, he's going to try and knock me down. I'm going to let him. So he goes, you know, he's they're going to toss him and then I'll have two minutes and then it'll, you know, yeah. make up for me getting a penalty. And he hammers me and knocks me down. It really, <laughs> really hurt. Like it really hurt. He got you, you good. Know, you got me good. And I didn't even lift my, didn't even protect myself, you know, and the ref looks at both of us and puts us in the box, both of us for 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, <laughs> like I was right next to you. He goes, well, you kind of skated towards him. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> right. Right. Like I, that's how I attacked him by like letting him not, you know, cross check me down to the ice and then I, I you know i get in the box and i had just snapped and i was like i look over at this kid and i'm like i'm gonna kill you like, <laughs> like, the second you step out onto that ice get your head up because i'm coming for you and i'm gonna i'm gonna really really hurt you <laughs> and he's like he looks at me he's like why and i'm like what do you mean why you know and then thank god it was 10 minutes because by the end of it i was like no, you're not. You're a moron. You're, <laughs> you're such a jackass. Like, stop acting like this, you know? And, and, um, you know, it was funny. Their captain, remember, he came in our locker room and was like, sorry about yeah, that. And he I did. was like, yeah, you know what, man? Like, it's all right. <laughs> but I, you know, honestly, I don't like that guy. I don't like, I don't like turning into that guy. Yeah. So I'm okay not playing hockey anymore because I don't act like that anywhere else. So we, need, we want you back. Yeah. Well, now well, you got some time. Maybe I can make it through a whole season with no penalties. Yeah. And, and maybe do that. <laughs> Let's set that goal. I almost made it. I almost Let's made it. Let's set the know, goal but, for this winter season. But I seriously just don't like <laughs> acting like that. I yeah. just don't. I don't like it. I don't. I don't. That's not a good example for anybody. Mm-hmm. And I don't like. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see if I can. If I can do, because I want to enjoy myself and I want to have fun. And now that I'm not doing the anthems, it'll be, yeah. I'll have some more time. You know, Mike brought that contract as well. Okay. Yeah. Well, Another, yeah, well that's, 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 that's your loss. Yeah. Yeah. You, guys, we need to sign that. you guys will regret that one for the yeah. rest of your lives. Right? Time that's for the signing. No, we would, <laughs> he was a minus 75 in an eight game season. <laughs> How do you even do that? We uh, would love to have you back. So that comes from. That's a message from the from the old dog's locker room. Okay. Bring Jake back. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you've been in, involved with Dog Nation for nearly 10 years now and and the lives of so many countless yeah. recipients. And um do you this could be a tough one, but do you have a favorite memory, Dog Nation memory? Well, I remember going up and doing the you know, doing the event that you guys did up in uh the first year that the, after the helicopter crash, it was Copper Mountain. Yeah, and he was still Rapture was still in the hospital, Correct. and he was not really necessarily expected to survive at that mm-hmm. point. Guys with third degree burns over that much of their body don't generally survive, right? Right. Only there's so much that can happen that's bad, infections, and I mean your immune system's toast, and your body's just you know in as good a shape as that guy was in. I mean that was I mean, we were raising money, basically like. <sighs> hope this guy makes it right. You know, cause it doesn't look good. So I remember doing that. And then I remember that guy coming to the next year's event and just being like, Holy crap. That guy is a warrior. <laughs> like that guy is absolutely. And his wife, you know, and his 
just that story and how sweet she is and how sweet they are to each other and how just that was really emotionally very overwhelming for me to see that. And that was a good, it's a really good indicator of, of the kind of work you guys do. Like it's, it's really amazing. It really is. You know, I mean, I run a nonprofit too, and I'm not as much of a closer as you are. I wish I was better at it, but, but you are able to just really focus this stuff and what you've, what we've created from, from passing a boot around in the locker room for these guys that got diagnosed with cancer on your team. That was like, Holy, holy cow, what do we do for this guy? Like, well, let's get him some beer money at least or whatever you guys were doing. Right. Mm-hmm. To this thing where you've given away over a million dollars. Right. Okay. And, Mike, what is the number? 3.2. Yeah. So that's well over a million dollars. That's that's a little more. Right. And to, to people that are, you know, it, it's a unique uh, angle that you guys take with people that are involved with hockey, you know, from guys mm-hmm. like that, that tear their knees up that wouldn't necessarily have the money to, to do the surgery and recover and, and get back to playing hockey to, you know, your guests, the guy that, you know, with the, with the prosthetic now that he's going to, you know, be able to do all sorts of sports and running and, you know, to people that are passing away, people that have terminal illnesses and their families and they, everybody needs money when something like that's happening because mm-hmm. you, you know, you can't be, you, you, there's just so much going on that that's important that they, and people don't think about the fact they need money. You know, they're like, right. you can send a card or whatever, but it's like, well, I haven't worked in six months because my husband is terminal with, you know, stage four cancer. It's like money helps. Yeah. yeah. Right. And yeah, was sure. really a big part of the Dave rupture recovery was Amanda being able to be by his side and yeah. shower him with love. Right. Yeah. So. It's not having to work and not having to do that. And, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really important. So it's a, it's a great niche that you guys have created and, and clearly it's very successful because other people can see that and buy into it. It's really, a, I mean, it's, you know, my hat's off to you guys. It's, no, it's pretty you. cool. You know, I, well, I try and copy you in every way that I can. Yeah, well, <laughs> I try and steal, your, steal your good ideas. Hats share, off. share our ideas. Hats, hats <laughs> off to us, right? Because yeah. you've been an integral yeah. part of it for, yeah. honestly, longer than I have been. So thank you. Um, well, hey, you've made such an impactful, um, you know, you've, you've had such an impact through your role with the, with the Avs and being able to share our national anthem with the crowds and, and with uh, you work with veterans and just so many amazing moments. Is there something that as you think about um, as you transition away from this role with the Avs, what are you going to miss the most? You know, I think I'll, I think I'll miss the, you know, the family aspect of it over there that, that for the most part is still there, you know, that, that, uh, you know, that was really created by Pierre. I mean, that was really a, that was a huge deal. And his setting the tone of that culture over there that existed for so long as was really a very, very powerful thing for me to learn in my life with my family and with mm. my business. And, um, and it was, it was really something. And there aren't many people in the world like Pierre Lacroix. There really aren't, um, very directed and very, he could be a scary guy, you know? He, you know, I remember he sat down at the chop house and asked if he could have dinner. I was just having dinner at the bar there one night after I had worked there. I wasn't working there anymore. And I think it was, you know, after a game or before a game or something. And I was just having a steak at the bar and, and, uh, and he's like, can I sit here and have dinner? And I was like, Oh God, you know, <laughs> oh man, I'm, I'm screwed. You know, <laughs> like, you know, like make sure you have my napkin, in my lap and all, you know, but, but he was, we had a really lovely time. He just sat down. That's the first time I ever really got to sit and talk to him. And, mm. and I just, just sit to you. Yeah. And mm. I really, really, I, I always, admired him and appreciated him, but was very, you know, intimidated by him for who he was. But then after that I had, I just had a lot of love for him 
Mm. He made me feel like one of his sons. He really did. You know, my dad was gone at that time. And, and, uh, and so he really made me feel like I was part of his family. And it mm. was really, really, really powerful to the point where, you know, when I see Coco or I see Eric and those guys, it's, it means a lot to me when I just get to see those guys in passing or talk to them at an event or, mm. you know, spend some time with them. It's, that was, I think that's probably the thing that, that I'm going to remember the most and the most powerful thing. And I think, I think really what built that organization, I really do. I really believe that that's why this organization is where it is successful. Yeah. All right. Hey, well, we have really enjoyed this. I know that um, before we end, we have a segment of our show called the Shawzy speed round and we've been having some fun with it. And so before we rack up, wrap up, Jake, we're going to hit the Shawzy speed round and Shawzy asks us all uh, three questions and we get about, you know, 30 seconds, you know, and so we'll let you go last so that you have a little time to and think. Steal your answers. I are, like I steal yeah. your ideas. Yeah. Marty yeah, and I are, you know, um, accustomed to it. So whenever you're ready, Shazi. <laughs> All right. So first question, there's a lot of these that have been made over the years. What's your all time favorite war movie? All time favorite war movie. Wow. Do you want to go first? You want me to? You go first this time. I think there's a couple of really obvious ones. But mine, this isn't totally a war movie, but there's there's some war in it, and it's one of my probably my favorite movie ever, and and that's Forrest Gump. <laughs> <laughs> and they got a little war part in yes, there. That's pretty do. important. Yes, too. they it's do. A big, big part of the show. So yeah. I I enjoyed that part. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm gonna go with Legends of the Fall. I uh, just love that movie in terms of the you know I think it's uh, it's the brotherhood right the brotherhood of, of, of those three brothers and their story, which I really relate to. You know, I would think that probably my, you know, Private Ryan is probably obviously because it took place in the area mm-hmm. that we have the thing, mm-hmm. but I, but sure. I really like Das Boot. That's a, oh, really? that's huh. a really intense more movie. And it really captures the, just the, the insanity of the loss that happens in war mm. really well. Well, if we would have put a bet there, I would have definitely lost. Cause I was, Private Ryan was going to be the one I was going to. He's tag picking that one for sure. You cannot love that movie, oh, yeah. especially if you're if you've spent any time in Normandy. But right. But I think as far as what captures the horror of war, Dust Boot does for me. There you go. What do you got? All right, next one. So this, you know, keeping it in the theme, favorite band from from Colorado. Favorite Colorado band. Oh man, Cappy. And I get to go first again. Well. It, the obvious one is OP gone bad, right? But I think this yeah. one, um, <laughs> I don't think they're technically Colorado, but it's, it's one of my favorites. My here's that station constantly in our office there, but Lumineers should be up there for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going this summer. Oh, are you really? Yeah, there you how go. About that? Yeah. Uh, mine is um, straight out of um, uh, this area from Columbine high school and then from Boulder, Colorado. Big Head Todd and the Monsters. Love those guys. You know, I'd have to say Big Head Todd too, and not not necessarily just because only because of their music and their but because of the I've known those guys like since I first started a band. Yeah. And those guys taught me so much about everything. And I remember I met this girl like long, long time ago when we were playing one night and she goes, you know, she'd gone to Columbine. She goes, I remember like we used to sit on the bleachers and watch football practice and we'd all make fun of Todd, like walk, he'd walk by the bleachers on the way back to, he'd have his guitar on his back and he'd, he's walking home to go practice or whatever. We'd like totally make fun of him. And now all of us pay all this money to go see him and he's awesome. And we all think he's sexy and great. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, yeah that's right. I thought that was such a great story, but I, I love those guys. They're, yeah. they're such nice people. Yeah. Such good guys. That's good stuff. 
That's cool. That's cool. I thought you might have said honorable mention John Denver. <laughs> Ooh, that's <laughs> that a pretty good one. Does yeah. it count? Uh, yeah, yeah uh, it counts. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. can't just pick one, right? Yeah. yeah, 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 totally. All right. And so along the same lines, you can't just pick one. Mm. Okay. Hey, favorite, but there is a choice here. You can answer either one. Mm. Favorite DQ Blizzard flavor or Ben and Jerry's ice cream? Wow. So I was telling Smallsy earlier today that I don't really ever, I don't know if I've ever even had a blizzard, but my favorite, I'm going to go favorite DQ um, dessert, and that's going to be a peanut buster parfait. Oh, man, a classic. That's a classic. It's the one I had when I was a little kid, and I still love it today. Yeah. Mine would be all the above. <laughs> Smallsy says Smallsy. Yeah. I mean, when anybody's going to Dairy Queen, they're like, do you want a blizzard? Uh, yes, I do. What kind? Anything you bring me, I'm going to love. I just, Ben and Jerry are so loudmouth about their politics. I just can't enjoy their ice cream and they can, they can kiss it. That's so why I, I really like like the, the, uh, the, what is it? The Heath Bar, the Heath Bar Blizzard. That's a good one. Ooh, oh, that one. is a pretty good one. Yeah. Another classic. Yeah. A classic. All right. Well, hey, we uh, we just want again, Jake. Thank you for everything you have done for Dog Nation. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for um, just inspiring the next generation of youth and and everything that you've done for our country through your gift of uh, singing the national anthem. Well, it's been a great ride. I mean, the, the it's been a really amazing ride. I'm really happy to get to have done it and on on to bigger and greater things now, different things, you know, we're excited so. to be part of that next chapter. Well. Yeah. I can't wait to see this either. And, um, I know it's going to be very successful. Thanks. I hope so. Yeah. We know. So <laughs> when we come back, we're going to visit with Sam beverage, uh, a recent recipient who, uh, uh, lost his leg in a, in a hunting accident and, uh, can't uh, speaking of inspiration, can't wait to uh, have him share his story with, with our listeners. So, uh, we'll be right back. All right, folks, we're back and we're honored to be joined by Sam Beveridge, one of our most recent recipients of the Corn Dog. Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. All right, Sammy, you're in the house, my man. Excited? Thank you. I'm glad to be here. All righty. Well, you have a pretty crazy story. You've told it to me lots of times to lots of other people, but not everybody knows it. Um, can you tell us about it? You bet. You bet. Um, I was out here in uh, Brighton, Colorado, uh, the begin the end of January, beginning of February, um, doing a goose hunting trip. Um, I like to go goose hunting. I've got a well-trained dog that, uh, that I enjoy watching. And so it was just a nice Friday afternoon. I thought I'd escape from work, work from the blind, take a few business calls as I wasn't goose calling and, <laughs> and just have a day. Um, and that day just turned a little bit uh, sideways, if you will, as uh, we had a big group of geese come in, um, me and about eight other guys. And uh, as the geese came in, we had a nice shoot. And then after that, uh, I like to send the dog out for a retrieve. And so I got out of the, the layout blind and was standing in front of my blind and, and sent the dog out on the left wing. And as I did that, she anxiously charged out of the blind and and in doing so, she stepped on the trigger of my 12-gauge shotgun. And uh, in that, I was two feet away from that shotgun. And it took uh, my right leg off um, basically two inches above my ankle for about five to six inches of my tibia bone. Mm. Um, 
you know, at that moment, I knew something was wrong. I had no idea what had happened, but I was on the ground. Um, luckily, I had some friends there, and one of them had a had a field tourniquet, and they got that on my leg right away, and and kind of slowed down some bleeding. Um, they got me in a back of a pickup. Um, we met the ambulance on the side of the road, and then from Brighton, they took me up to Greeley, um, which was a half an hour in the ambulance. Um, and as they made that decision of Greeley or Denver, it was about a 15-minute difference, shorter to go to Greeley, plus they were worried about Denver traffic. And so in that 30 minutes, I had pretty well um, bled out, if you will, um, for lack of better words. And, uh, and so when I got to Greeley, I was in pretty rough shape. And so mm. they got me in the emergency room. Um, they spent that first night about eight hours working on me. I think they uh, injected about 12 units of blood into my body that night, which if you do any research on on your blood flow, you have 12 units in your body. So everything that I had was basically replenished. And, uh, and then that night, they basically forced me into a coma just to decide what they were going to do with, with my body. Um, the next morning, they, they woke me up out of my coma. They gave me some opportunities to decide whether to keep my leg or amputate. Um, by keeping my leg, it would probably would have resulted in a, in a limb that was really, quote, useless in my mind. And I would have had kind of a dead foot, if you will, um, without the nerves and things like that that I'd shot off. And so we made the decision to amputate. And so that Sunday morning, we... We amputated my leg five inches below my knee. Um, I spent a week in the hospital getting it closed up. And uh, to even the doctor's uh, surprise, I was out in within a week. Um, you know, they put the challenges right in front of me right there. And I knew the moment I woke up, I needed to succeed at this. And so their, their challenges to me were if I could walk around the nurse's station with a walker, and I could take a shower, I could get out of there. And uh, I said, let's do it. And they're like, how far have you walked? I was like, not at all. And they're <laughs> like, well, we don't think you can do it. And sure enough, I I did it, right? I mean, wow. for for what you know of me right now, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm not short of any challenge. And 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 that to prove to my to my two boys that are 15 and 13, I, I owed it to them to get going. So that's yeah. what I did. Yeah. That that's, I, I, like you said, I've, I've witnessed it already a little bit on my own and you and I have got to know each other pretty well over the last, uh, a few weeks here, but kind of follow up for the non hunter guy there. Um, is it common for someone to carry a field tourniquet or was that cause, and it, that really saved your life, right? That was, that was really the saver of my life because of just the, the loss of blood and being in the middle of nowhere. Honestly, if I think if they would have done it differently, they should have had a flight for life come get me because of the blood was coming out of me that fast. Mm. I don't believe the 9-11 people knew the, the severity of the injury at the time that they sent the ambulance. Um, but having a field tourniquet is, is one of those things that's, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's like having a spare tire that has air in it, you know, in your car. You don't really think about it, but it's always good to make sure that you have that thing going on. Mm -hmm. Most people never carry them. I've never carried one, but I guarantee you anyone that has hunted with me um, has uh, 
going to get one as yeah. we go forward. Yeah, yeah, I bet you're carrying one from now here on out. Huh? Yeah, and yeah. sorry for the duck call. I mean, hey, that's that that's my timed. that's my son calling me. And so <laughs> just always remind you of hunting. My, Perfect. Yeah. I was my wondering. I was like, is I a, hear a duck right is now. Is a duck <laughs> call. So. Yeah. I thought it was Shazzy queuing up the ducks. No, no, yeah, I thought it was Shazzy yeah. from Taco Bell last night. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> well, Sam, tell us about um, your attitude towards this accident, because I know that that's, you know, obviously that's a life changing injury for you. And yet everyone who knows you and just my limited interaction with you is really about just this incredible positive attitude and overcoming any obstacle. So how, how do you approach this? You bet. Thanks, Mike. Um, you know, honestly, for me, there's a part of the story that I didn't tell this first round. And that was really that first night after they kind of released me after the surgery and, and, and going into that coma. Um, for me, I call it the white rhino. I saw the white rhino. I saw my life kind of flash ahead of me. Mm. And as I was laying in that bed, I mean, it's such a distinct visual for me of seeing that rhino come out of the white light and mm. just go right over my shoulder. And at that moment when I knew that I was alive and I knew that I had another chance at, at doing things different in my life. Wow. As far as me handling the adversity or being scared of the gunshot, I could care less about that. For me, it was about how do I pick myself up from this, this obstacle that's been put in front of me and then two, how do I show my boys and other people out there an example of which you can do anything? And for me, I had no idea about prosthetics. I had no idea what my life was going to look like. But I knew in that moment of seeing that rhino that I had another chance and I had an opportunity to kind of set things right in my life that were a little sideways. Mm. And... As far as having my boys around me and family and now you guys at Dog Nation, I mean, what an opportunity it has created for me. And this is just the beginning. I mean, I'm three months in right now. I'm walking. I'm looking. I've rode my bike. Um, I'm looking at trying to figure out how to build a running leg. And thanks to Dog Nation, I've got the funds to do that now. I'm just excited for life. Like, I get so many cool things now and I get to appreciate everything that I wasn't, especially with the rat race of COVID pressures of work, you know, all the things of being a quote unquote adult, mm -hmm. I get to reset. And that just gives me so much fire and vigor and it's exciting to look ahead. Well, Hey, I want to uh, thank you for sharing that. It's uh, I know people at our corn dog were just really inspired by meeting you, seeing you, hearing your story, and they couldn't believe that you were only two and a half months out from your accident. So uh, I want to get to hockey for a moment. I know you're yeah. you're a hockey player, but uh, before that, I understand you were a scout team coach at the Evil Empire, also known as Nebraska. <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure if you know this, but I'm a, a Colorado scout team legend myself, having uh, uh, really simulated 
uh, in 89 and 90, I had to be the Nebraska quarterback as Absolutely. we got ready for And you can picture that as a scout team quarterback. Absolutely. Every, or a scout team coach. You bet. So so during my college experience, I went to the University of Nebraska when Nebraska was good, right? <laughs> we were there. I was there 94 through 98. So I experienced three national championships, which was amazing. And for me as an opportunity, I served – my job in college was basically the undergrad assistant to the defensive coordinator, Charlie McBride. Um, what a fantastic opportunity working with all Americans on a daily basis, running the scout team, getting to be the Colorado quarterback of all things. I mean, whatever, but, <laughs> but uh, each week, right. It was, it was, how do I do that drop step to the left or, do I, which, what am I doing with my, my right foot? Am I pounding it? And are we bringing in a, a wide receiver on in motion? What do those plays look like? But furthermore, it was really about the relationships that I made with the players that all went on to be NFL players and also the coaches, right? I mean, I still talk to Charlie McBride today. Mm. I still have the opportunity to be around a lot of those players. Not to mention my brother was a wide receiver for Nebraska at the same time. And so being on the field watching him play was a tremendous opportunity that I'll never forget. Traveling the games and then getting to wear national championship rings. Yeah. Do you have one of those, Mike? I do, actually. He does. Yes, yeah. I do. I don't have three of them, though. <laughs> That's so, pretty impressive. So, three, so, isn't it? Yeah, so, it yeah is. so that was that was an awesome experience. What a cool... Wasn't that the best? Colorado, Nebraska. I mean, yeah. I just... I, I'm yeah, we miss to, that. Yeah, I do, too. Yeah. So, so tell us how a football guy ended up playing hockey. You bet. You bet. So as far as the football, I really transcended into, you know going out into a career of, of trading commodities and, you know, everything is on the, on your edge on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. You never know what the market's going to give you. And you always got to be playing defense first of all. So sports was always a big thing in my life. The job then started to take over as I became a grown up. I later on moved from Kansas city to Minneapolis during the Enron debacle as I traded electricity and natural gas and started working for a big um, company called Cargill. Being in Minneapolis, I think as children are born, they're born with skates on their feet <laughs> and, you know, not knowing anything about hockey, but loving the idea of the sport. Um, my boys quickly were at three and four years old learning how to skate. And everyone in Minneapolis on a daily basis has outdoor rinks in their backyard. You go to someone's house, that play date is playing pickup hockey or shinny hockey, having a warming house, sending pizza out there, and then the parents stay inside and party all night. <laughs> I mean, what a great atmosphere. Could be better, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, that's how I started to, to learn the sport of hockey. And then I became, you know, I started playing in a beginner's league, right? <laughs> and to the point where my team just made fun of me constantly because I wasn't that great at it. I could, I could get moving. I don't know about my stopping skills, but the day I scored my first goal and they gave me the puck from the game. I mean, what a razz, what a great time. I mean, and so I instantly fell in love with the sport of hockey. My boys continue to play as then we later on moved to Denver for a job transfer that I did. Um, we, they, I have two boys that are 15 and 13, Jack and Gage beverage. They play at Littleton. Um, 
it's been a tremendous experience. My best friends are the hockey dads and mothers out there. Um, and then it also allowed me to look at the opportunity of this, right? I mean, it all just kind of lays on and you, you don't realize the building blocks that hockey can provide, but you know, it took sports to hockey, to my children, to you guys. And what an opportunity. And I mean, not to mention maybe losing a leg, but, (laughs) but, uh, you know, there's all those things and you just, you start to sit back and realize that things happen for a reason. And there's opportunities within every, every little, every little challenge and every little opportunity, if you just take a look at it. And so, um, that's how it really evolved for me to into the hockey sport and watching my boys and, and, and cheering for them. Yeah. You got some talented young men there too. Um, clearly, uh, you've already mentioned it a couple of times here uh, that you've embraced dog nation quite heartily already. And, um, in your words, what's this organization meant to you and your family? You know, it's an organization that, you know, as far as the funds, those are fan. I mean, that's a, that's an amazing, amazing gift that I was given. I mean, I still remember crying the minute I saw that, that check. I mean, I started crying the moment I thought you were going to actually honor me because I didn't know at the cornhole tournament what was happening. So that was a great surprise. Furthermore, what my amputation, if let's just go there, has allowed me to do is see another group of people and embrace a new category of friends. Mm -hmm. Like having my amputation when I'm around wheelchairs, spinal injuries, losses of other limbs, such as hands, right? These guys are all just calling me a paper cut because (laughs) all I've done is lose an ankle and maybe a foot, right? (laughs) They've lost so much more, but then what dog nation has allowed amputees and people in wheelchairs to do is have an opportunity to have something to look forward to. And I talked to the sled hockey and then, I mean, what an, what an amazing thing that you guys are doing for people. And you have, you know, it's not you guys that's handicapped. It's not you guys that have had adversity per se, but the opportunity that you guys are giving others just warms my heart through and through. And, you know, for, for me as Dog Nation to further look on that, I mean, I want to be a part of it beyond my injury. Like, I wish I would have been wise enough to notice it prior. But mm-hmm. now that I do notice it, I guarantee all my friends are going to know about it. I mean, like our posts the other day, Chappie, I mean, you uh, you mentioned how many people f- liked it and followed it, right? Like, I'm not I'm not slowing down the, the drumbeat, right? Yeah. We're going to manifest this thing to others and share this story and share the opportunities that are provided through the cornhole, through the hockey tournament, through the golf tournaments. Those are the things that I just cannot wait to share. Yeah, it's awesome. That is awesome. Sam Beveridge beating the Dog Nation drum. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's an honor, man. So tell us about what's next for Sam Beveridge. You know, you're the guy who who uh, got himself out of the hospital in record time and an avid outdoorsman. What's What's your next goal? You know, my next goal right now is to do my next bike race. Um, 
prior to losing my leg, I'd, I'd done a, a lot of bike races. Um, I've done Leadville 12 times. Mm. My goal is to do it 20. Mm. Why? I don't know. I'm crazy. <laughs> but cause you can, but as far as what I want to do is get, get from walking to riding my bike to running to doing the things that I used to do and then doing it with a message to others. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think for me, it's just continuing this momentum that I have of this opportunity that's been given to me by losing my leg to share my story through the events that I'm good at, through the events that my kids love. And it does nothing but bring, you know, bring happiness and joy to others, right? That's really it. Like, why don't I give back? Like, I have the time. I have the way, I have plenty of energy. So let's, let's do it. That's my goals, Mike. Um, And, you know, thankfully for Dog Nation, like the running leg, that's a huge thing for me, right? Yeah. Once I get that leg, I'm going to wear a Dog Nation flag and I'm going to run a marathon with the <laughs> damn thing, right? Like, yeah. like, there's no... We'll cheer you on. That's it's, right. It's, it's zero or a hundred for, for me. Yeah. And so some so something like that is really a, a goal that I set. And uh, to put myself in uncomfortable positions mm-hmm. to grow as a person I think is a continuum that needs to happen. Well, you, one you didn't mention there at the cornhole event is, as Mike said early on here when we, on our intro about, uh, men, women, able-bodied, disabled, blind, everybody at that event there. And there was a group of guys there that True. were ready to embrace you. Yep. And, um, that, that was the sled hockey community. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I got to get out there. One of my new, uh, this new CrossFit gym that I go to, it's, uh, the owner is is paralyzed, and he has done an amazing job of showing me adaptive workouts as far as getting my body back to moving, learning new motor skills with and without my leg. And he just started playing sled hockey. Did he really? And I guarantee you there is nothing more that I want to slide across that ice and just take that big bully out. (laughs) And so um, joining that community with Jerry and the the guys that I've met several times, you're exactly right. And uh, getting out there is definitely a goal of mine. Yeah, I can't wait. We'll we'll, um, have to jump in sleds right next year when we do that. But, um, But anyway, thank you for coming on today we really appreciate your stories amazing inspirational um everything right right smallsy and this is uh uh, we can't uh thank you enough and can't be honored enough to have you part of our pack absolutely again we we always uh tell our recipients we get more out of you guys than you get from us and i think it proved true again today we're walking away inspired going man i can't wait to see what sam beverage does right yeah so we want to be there with you when you do it I mean, I can't thank you guys enough. There's not enough words. There's a few. There's maybe not enough hugs, but you guys are awesome. What you do and the joy you share to others is is beyond me. And I'm just in awe of your work and dedication to this organization. Well, thank you, Sam. And um, that wraps up this segment.
All right, we are back and wrapping up episode seven of season two featuring Jake Schroeder and our recipient, Sam Beveridge. Uh, boy, I know I was, uh, uh, as, I, as I think about what I just heard, one of the things that, that just strikes me is the importance of just seeing the unseen and, and rallying to people in need. And so as I think about what Sam said about seeing and embracing people, and the importance of that and what he's learned. Uh, Sam, thank you for sharing that. That was just really powerful. And uh, you heard Jake talk about Pierre Lacroix and the importance of building a family culture. And you heard about how important Sean Podine was to Jake because he had a radar for people that need special attention. And so I think, you know, that's the theme I heard across today's show. And I think, boy, if we all walk away with a little bit of each one of those, the world's going to be a better place. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of along the same lines. Mine would have been the theme today. It felt like family, whether they're related to you or not related to you. That, um, and that started. I mean, he talked about the family that Pierre Lacroix built, and and still in foundation at the Avs today. He's talked about his own family. We talked about my dad, and and um, of course, the overriding of all of that is is the dog family, which we're all part of. So for me, it was family, Sam. For me, it's just listening to you guys and understanding the details at which you embrace each and every person that you guys touch and the foundation of putting it into your memory and your heart and being able to speak to it so fluently was something that blew me away of you two as individuals and then deeper how the organization is growing and it's you know, it just gives me more faith of the dog nation and what's behind it is a true heart and passion for each and every person that you guys touch, not only for you guys individually, but as the group as a whole. So yeah, back to what you said, family, 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 relationships, all of those things are so foundational to your pillars of what you started here. And you guys just blew me away and I know it's going to continue to grow. It really is. We have one of our biggest events of the year coming up, our Dog Bowl 12. And I think we're um, poised and ready to uh, welcome 62 teams, the sled hockey family, the blind hockey community, and of course our Survivor Game, which really celebrates uh, folks like yourself, Sam, that have, of, that have uh, incurred a major life-altering injury or illness. Or you know, in some cases, people that have lost a loved one, and so it really lifts up that survivor community, and and I know that you know really creates more families. I know we have at least four recipients that we're planning for at this time. Yeah, yeah, that survivor game is kind of the crescendo of a five day weekend out there, and another biggest dog bowl ever. Every year we can't we think we can't make it bigger, but it is going to be even bigger, and um, it needs to be because we're getting recipient requests every week if not every ever every other day or so so just to keep up and we don't want to say no to anybody at this point so this this is a biggie and um this year we have something special mike called the survivor cup right yeah we really do a really it's looks like the stanley cup mm-hmm. and has people's uh name engraved on it that are that have played in that survivor game and so um, there's people's names on that cup that are no longer with us like heather Karras and arnie archuleta uh, that have played in, and been celebrated as part of that game, as well as people that are thriving today mm-hmm. and uh, and doing great. And that was donated to us by uh, 
Van Stone. Yeah, Van's going to play his first ever Survivor game coming up. And for those of you that follow Dog Nation know that Van had a in, uh, fell down the stairs in 2018, an amazing hockey player, collegiate hockey player, and um, dad and business owner and husband. And and uh, the easiest of tasks became almost um, undoable for him. And, and he's something's happened to him in the last few months um really because of you mike honestly and that's uh that's gotten van back on the ice and and we've witnessed literally a miracle in front of our eyes and van just played which nobody thought he would ever do never mind play hockey he literally played a hockey tournament last weekend yes incredible yes he did surrounded by fellow survivors each with their own stories but they were there in St. Louis because they love Van, and no one was going to back away from the goal, Sam, speaking of goals, of getting him back on the ice. Yeah. So so uh, that was a good one today, and put, that puts a wrap on Season 2, Episode 7. And remember always to play hard, play fair, and give back. You were born to win.